What is up, freaks? It's your boy Marty Ben here on a Friday morning, here to introduce you to this week's episode with Alpha Zeta. Our good friend has been on the podcast before with the Bitcoin Tina. Earlier this summer, we talked about the inversion of the yield curve. Uh, we caught up with Alpha Zeta as he was in town from Brazil last week on Halloween. Had an incredible conversation, jumped into uh, his uh, career on Wall Street, his views on Bitcoin, Bitcoin volatility in particular, uh, the types of uh, products that can be built around Bitcoin moving into the future, and uh, the nature of Bitcoin's uh, disruptiveness. I think you guys are going to love this one. I loved it. It was a great uh, conversation. We had a lot of fun. Uh, this episode of Tales from the Crypt is brought to you by the Cash App. As you know, Cash App is the simplest way to send and save money, and now it's the simplest way to try to grow your money. Introducing Cash App investing. Unlike investing tools that only let you buy entire shares of stock, Cash App lets you instantly invest as little or as much as you want. You can uh, you can sell slivers of shares in the Seychelles. All right, we came up with this yesterday on RHR. Actually, we didn't come up with it. Uh, a freak shouted out uh, overnight. We you can now get slivers of shares. Um, so she sells slivers of shares by in the seashells. All right, that's what we're working on the cash app. What I'm trying to say is you can buy a fraction of a stock just like you can buy a fraction of a Bitcoin. You can stack sats, and I can stack sons. Or, or excuse me, we're buying slivers of shares. Okay, and because cash app is directly connected to your bank account, there are no four to five day waiting periods for inbound transfers, so you can start investing today. Brokerage services are provided by Cash App Investing, a subsidiary. A subsidiary a subsidiary of Square and member SIPC. As always, use the code StackingSats. You're going to get $10. $10, not $5 anymore, freaks. $10. If you haven't signed up yet, take advantage of this, if anything, to get $10 worth of sats. Uh, and they're also going to send $10 to Owls Lacrosse. Ooh, Owls. All right, download the Cash App today from the Apple Store or the Google Play Store. This episode is also brought to you by our friends at Casa. You guys know all about them already. Uh, does your key setup have a single point of failure? You gotta ask yourself these questions. Um, or you do you have a sovereign recovery package? Have you thought about this? Because you always control uh, your keys with Casa. You can never be denied access to your Bitcoin, and access to your funds can never be frozen, even if Casa were to go out of business. Uh, this includes a sovereign recovery. They're they're multi-sig packages. Um, they're tiered packages. So if you engage in one of their multi-sig uh, setups and they go bust as a company. Don't worry, you can recover it uh, by yourself uh, remotely, doing your own setup. On top of that, they're very privacy focused. They've designed their business to require no KYC, no altcoins, um, 100% Bitcoin, no fees uh, on your Bitcoin. Uh, they have the, again, they have packages that you'll pay. Uh, and if you use the code TFTC, you're going to get up to $250 off your Casa membership. All this comes with a full set of hardware wallets for your multi-sig, uh, plus the Casa node, Casa node 2 now, uh, with Faraday bags and early access to all future Casa products. If you're in the Diamond or Platinum membership for serious hodlers, uh, it's going to net you 24-7 VIP service, dedicated client advisor, and a custom onboarding OPSEC plan. So please go to keys.casa slash keymaster, check out their multi-sig. If you want to email them directly, email them at membership at team.casa. And ask them your hardest OPSEC questions. All right, freaks, enjoy this episode. It was a spooky Halloween episode. I'm getting it out a week later. I think you're going to uh, like it. Enjoy. Take care.
and the creeps. What is up, freaks? Welcome back to Tales from the Crypt, and happy Halloween. I don't know if this will be posted on Halloween, but happy Halloween nonetheless. Happy White Paper Day. Happy White Paper Day, is true. Happy uh, 11th anniversary of the White Paper. We're here uh, catching up with a friend who was on the podcast a few months ago. Uh, he was remote, though, when we recorded that episode. Very happy to have him here in person to jump more into his story. We talked about the re- inversion of uh, the yield curve when he was first on the podcast. I'd like to reintroduce you freaks to Alpha Zeta Alpha. What is up, freaks? <laughs> <laughs> Ah, how we doing, dude? Good, good. Straight, straight from Brazil to Brooklyn, uh, to an undisclosed lo- location here in Brooklyn. So happy to be here with you guys. Well, happy to have you. Very happy. Uh, again, happy Halloween. Halloween's a big, uh, big holiday in your family. Yes, it is for sure. You know, yeah. my my daughter just loves it, so that's why we're here. <laughs> Believe it or not. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah, it's also White Paper Day. Eleven years since the White Paper. I wrote about it this morning. It's hard to believe. Where were you guys when the white paper? What were you doing in Halloween 2008? I saw your uh, your picture from Halloween 2008. Yeah. Fucking fantastic. Yeah, I have photographic evidence of what I was doing that day. It was a beautiful day for me. Uh, I was a senior in high school, and it was we were able to dress up for Halloween that day. And it just so happened to be also the day after the Phillies won the World Series. So I was uh, at the game the night they won the World Series uh, and had celebrated after. So that picture you saw of me and the Lieutenant Dangle... Uh, costume was after celebrating a World Series victory uh, with no sleep uh, at 17 years old. So that's what I was. I was 17 years old. It's crazy to think uh, Bitcoin has been around for uh, almost a third, more than a third of my life at this point. I was trying to figure out if I had the job at Wall Street in 2008 at this time, you know, it was like craziest time in Wall Street. Yeah. So, so that that's your background. Let's jump into it. You, we touched a little bit on it on the first episode with Bitcoin Tina, that freak. But uh, let's like, what's your background? How did you come to find Bitcoin? Let's jump in more to your story. Yeah, and hopefully people can can understand me now because last time the mic was bad, and you know, if my accent was probably double hard to to understand anything. But yeah, I you know, Brazilian as I said, I grew up in Brazil, um, and then I came to the U.S. where I worked in different firms in Wall Street, some of the the big ones. Uh, trading capacity, you know, did some fixed income trading, then did some sales and trading as well, covering ultra high net worth individuals, family offices, um, mostly on the t- side of derivatives, uh, but did a little bit of, of everything. That's the thing with sales and trading, right? To just touch a little bit of everything, cross asset class. Um, and then 2015, end of 2015, that's when I started looking at your Bitcoin. And like everybody else, just. Uh, Went down the rabbit hole and uh, still still learning a lot. You know, there's still a lot to, that I that I need to learn, but uh, it still amazes me. You know how much it keeps growing, and uh, and I think that you know we're starting to see more and more interest from other people. Like you know, as I mentioned, from family offices, I'm starting to see people asking about it, and you know, it's just exciting exciting times ahead of us. Yeah, and you uh, were describing to me earlier that you got Bitcoin sort of innately because of your experience growing up in Brazil. Let's jump into that. Exactly. Yeah. So, you know, growing up in Brazil in the in the eighties, we had hyperinflation. When I'm talking about hyperinflation, it was, you know, people don't realize how crazy it really is. Like money would literally lose value overnight. You know, I remember my my mother giving me money for lunch at school and telling me like, you gotta spend that money, don't bring anything back because if you do, by next week this is won't be worth anything. And you know, also remember like 
30th of the month, supermarkets were packed because everybody would get their paycheck. And the first thing they did is that they would convert the paycheck into, into goods. So they would buy food, they would buy anything that they could. Um, and sometimes we would walk around the supermarket and there was a guy with, uh, you know, like these pricing machines changing prices as you walk through the supermarket. So my mother would run around like, oh, we got to go ahead of that guy so that, you know, the price doesn't change as we're walking through. Uh, and it, it's very hard to live in a system like that because, you know, you, you literally can't hold any money. Uh, and the banks started adapting also very quickly. First thing that we saw is that any real assets became dollarized uh, very quickly. So real estate, all of that was cars, was all priced in dollars, right? So uh, the local currency did really didn't have any any value. Um, and then you know the banks also you would leave money in banks, and the banks would pay you int daily interest, overnight interest on in your money, because otherwise people just wouldn't leave the money in the in the banks. Uh, but that was, you know, of course, growing up in, a, in something like that, that becomes kind of like enrooted in you. And uh, it, it, that was, I think, the first thing that really, when I saw Bitcoin, like, okay, this, I see the value on this exactly because of that. How did hyperinflation affect, like, the psyche of the Brazilian people? Do you remember the, tr the, the lead up to the hyperinflationary, uh, the bout of hyperinflation and, and how quickly people's mindset changed? Or did it change quickly? Did it, did it, was there, was it hard for people to believe at first? Uh, yeah, when I, you know, when... As far as I remember, it was already very bad from the beginning. Like when I, you know, in the, the early 80s, it was already very bad. So, you know, I think people adapt very quickly because they have no choice, right? They see money disappear in front of them and, uh, and then they, they adapt very quickly. But there is, up until today, you see that there is kind of a loss of, um, I think, confidence in government and the financial institutions because of that time. And hyperinflation still think really, really um, tied into all Brazilians. Like you know, we we see inflation very differently than than anybody else in in the world, right? Because uh, again, we live through it. And and then it the root was completely monetary, as you would expect. Um, and the fixing it was also you know fixing the the monetary system. And in '94, uh, we had a new economic plan. And slowly, you know, the, I think the monetary base was fixed, and uh, and then the the economy took off from there. It was at least much better than than it was before. Uh, yeah, but those are were were very interesting times, and because of that, I, I there are two things. You know, when people ask me, like, you know, what got you into Bitcoin? I think that's the first one, um, and the second is. You know, the, the fact that, uh, which is related, is like, I think it was, I don't remember exactly the date, but we went through a couple of economic plans in Brazil where they pretty much just froze savings accounts. So you had money in, in uh, saving accounts, you couldn't take your money out. It was limited. You could take, like, the government would say, I can't take $100 out. Pretty much what's happening in Argentina right now, same thing happened. And I remember vividly, like, my father struggling trying to, to make ends meet because, you know, he didn't have access to his savings. He couldn't take money out, right? And that took, over, you know, for a few months, we really didn't have uh, access to, to any money. <laughs> so you can imagine. And, you know, this, we're not talking about something, you know, that's like 60, 70 years ago. This is literally like 30 years ago, right? 40 years ago. And it could definitely happen in other countries. Last week in Argentina, like yeah, exactly. you said. <laughs> like, it, is, it is insane. Like that. And so for your father in that situation, how pissed off was he? Yeah. Was he pissed off or sad, angry, a mixture of all? I think, you know, I remember him being very, and I wouldn't say angry, but he was worried. 
like you know you have these memories that you kind of remember exactly where you were and did exactly how it was this is one of them that i remember where i was sitting i remember him watching the tv with my mother you know like in the in the night and the the the, the woman that was the minister of finance at the time coming to tv and you know making this announcement i remember that vividly because i remember their reaction um and you know again it was really really tough and i think something that what was their reaction he was really pissed off. Yeah. Like, you know, how come? You know, how I'm gonna? Th- and I needed the money, right? You know, I was waiting to take the money out, um, and that's the advantage of Bitcoin, right? Nobody, you know, I have my treasure, and uh, it's available anytime I want, everywhere I go. Um, like my grandparents also escaped from World War II, coming from Europe to to Brazil. And when they did, they couldn't take anything with them. Like, you know, they left behind, you know, all the real estate. Um, you know, my, my grandfather used to tell me that he had like arts that he had to leave behind. Right? All of these things that were store value for him, but he just couldn't take, you know, as he was escaping from, from the war. Um, so Bitcoin fixes this. Right? <laughs> <laughs> and Bitcoin fixes this, but going back to like the hyperinflationary battle you were describing in the in the. Uh, grocery store like there are certain goods that are uh are better stores of value for sure like, absolutely so so your, your shopping would be strategic during these times yeah you would buy things that you know were non-perishable and uh, that you could store um and it, you know people would have huge refrigerators at home as well you know i remember my mom had like three refrigerators at home because she would get everything that was perishable she needed to get and then store it there for the for the whole month uh, you know, we go once a month to the supermarket. You can imagine, like, you got to get everything, right? And then we're inside. And, and a high preference for, you know, canned goods and all of that that you know, you know wouldn't, wouldn't get uh, perishable during, during the month. So is there, like, a transitionary black market currency uh, situation going on bef- between the 80s and 94 when you sort of got yeah. everything? There, w- there was, you know, a, a black dollar market. Uh, there are people that made money out of uh, just converting uh, the local currency into dollars. Uh, they're called the doleros. They're just dollar dollar guys, right? And people would go into these places and convert their currencies into dollars because dollars they knew that they could hold like physical cash right somewhere at home. Um, and there are some of, some of these guys made millions and millions of dollars just by converting local currency. Uh, into dollars, because uh, again, it's what that was the preference for the people to hold dollars. And then were they accepted, like at stores in Brazil? Or? Uh, it it technically the the stores couldn't accept it, mm-hmm. uh, so you know you couldn't go to a supermarket and just use dollars. That would have been probably the right answer, <laughs> but you couldn't. Mm-hmm. Um, so people would still have to convert back and then pay things. But for anything like real estate, real estate transactions were all done in dollar terms, right? They could be settled in local currency, but at the end of the day, you were talking dollar terms. It would, the agreed price would be in dollar terms, right? Uh, so pretty much the economy in terms of price reference, which is really what matters, it was a dollar economy. Uh, for many, many years, it was like that. It, up until today, you would see people that, you know, would, uh, like, I know some of the large families in Brazil, and pretty much all of their assets, when they do the accounting of their assets, they still do it in dollar. Uh, because again, first you're used to that, and second, it's a much more stable currency than than the local currency. Yeah, no, that's something we were discussing over breakfast. Is the dollar is probably going to strengthen a lot going forward if if all these weaker currencies keep falling, falling. And yeah, I think that you know, as uh, and this is a theory that a lot of people talk about is. Um, 
the whole world is not in a good situation. So com in comparison, the dollar is still much better than anything else in terms, I think, of uh, economic strength and also in interest rates, right? So interest rates here still being, and at least in the developed countries, being fairly high. Uh, you're still going to see dollars coming in, and uh, you know we all know it's wrong. We all know that you know at some point this is going to revert. We all know that assets are inflated. We all know all, all that story. The question is when it's going to turn, and the answer is that nobody knows, right? Mm -hmm. uh, I've been definitely wrong about this for a couple of years. I've been thinking that you know stock markets are trash for the last few years, and they just keep getting stretched. <laughs> exactly, <laughs> so it's free money, so. Let's take a step back and talk about your Wall Street experience a little bit. So what was what was it like, number one, moving to America from Brazil? And is there any culture shock? Uh, what, what, what was that experience like? And then number two, what was what was it like on Wall Street? What did you see? Any war stories? Yeah, well, that's a lot of things. So uh, first on the on the cultural difference, uh, I mean, I think America is probably the place in the, in the world that it's most open to to people from the outside. Right. I. You know, I still look back and I'm amazed that, you know, somebody from my background, I came from Brazil, right? And, you know, I landed in Wall Street. And at some point I was managing teams of, you know, pretty much everybody was American, everybody was older than me. And, you know, that apart from here and there, you know, there weren't really big problems, which goes to show, I think, how much the, I think the U.S. is open to immigrants and open to, to people from outside, right? And I hope that continues to, I know, you know, recently it hasn't been like that, but I hope it continues because, you know, I'm living proof that I think that uh, um, for the rest of the world, at least there's a, a lot of value in, in coming here, right? And I think for America as well, this is a country that was built with immigrants, right? If you really think about it. Um, so in terms of culture, there are differences. I think that, you know, whenever you go to a new country, uh, you have to adapt to like small things, like you know, really understand what the uh, the micro messages are, right, in the corporate environment and all of that. But also, Americans are very practical, so it's very down to the point, you know. Very, there's, you know, people are very open, very honest, very transparent. <laughs> Sorry, very forthright. Especially yeah, on for Wall good Street. or for bad, which I, I actually appreciate that. Uh, Brazilians are just the opposite, right? And I'm generalizing maybe a little bit, but uh, we're just the opposite. Like Brazilians, you know, won't tell you straight to your face that they don't like you, uh, you know, they don't like something, right? You kind of have to read between the lines. And in the US, there's no bullshit, right? You go straight to the point and, you know, you put the differences on the table and that's it, particularly in Wall Street, right? You don't have time to waste and you move on. Um, so I really, really liked working here because of that. You go to meetings, right? Small example, you go to a meeting with, uh, with a client in Brazil and you're going to spend you know, immediately in the last one hour, you're going to spend 50 minutes of the meeting talking about, you know, small things, family, you know, all of that. And then spend 10 minutes talking about business, right? <laughs> Here's just the opposite. You start talking about business, get business out of the way, and you get everything done. And then the last 10 minutes, you talk about your family and everything yeah, else. How's right? Jimmy doing? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So, um, so that, I think th those were the, the big differences. And Wall Street... Uh, as I said, I did a little bit of everything. Uh, when I left, I was more on the kind of like in the, the executive side of Wall Street. So, which is something I didn't like because I was spending most of my time, you know, talking about legal compliance, all of that, you know, internal politics. And, you know, I, I like the trading side. I like to be following markets. I like to be with clients, right? That's what I always like to do. So when it started to be more on the corporate side, is when I said, well, maybe it's time to move on and do, and do something else. Um, but, uh, I think, you know, 
there were many horror stories, but uh, since you asked, I would, you know, I think that the biggest one that I remember, like something that marked, I think, my, my time in Wall Street was 2007. It couldn't be different, right? 2007, um, think, and there's so many similarities today also, because the whole time, 2006, 2007, we were looking back and we knew something wrong was happening. We knew assets were inflated. We, we knew that, you know, real estate prices were too stretched. Everybody knew about that. Everybody talked about that. Um, we actually priced a lot of protection to our clients. Uh, we went out and the uh, funny thing is that a lot of them didn't want to buy uh, because first either they thought it was, was really cheap, but they thought it was too expensive or they just thought, oh, this is just going to continue. I don't know what the timing is that it's going to turn, even though we knew that it was, you know, that was unsustainable. Um, but then I remember when 2007 came and you no know, first Bear Stearns and then ultimately Lehman. Uh, and that was, that's something that I've, I'm, of course, I'm going to remember for the rest of my life. <laughs> what was that? Uh, any particular day? Like September? Yeah, uh, yeah, exactly. So Lehman, so, you know, at the time I was, without doxing myself too much, uh, I, I was in one of the financial institutions that almost went down, right? And I remember going home on a Friday and, uh, you know, things were stressed, but not that bad. Uh, and at some point during that day on Friday, we actually thought, oh, maybe things are going to settle down and we're going to be fine. Uh, but then I got a call on Friday at around 11 o'clock at night from my boss, like, listen, I, I need you to come back to work. And I'm like, it's 11 o'clock at night. Like, no, you know, you're not understanding our it's firm. It's like margin call. You, pretty much. Yeah, our firm is, uh, is going to be freaks, sold. <laughs> by the way, freaks, I have watched margin call now. Shout out to American Hoddle for that recommendation. Sorry. <laughs> So, and he called us like, you, you got to come back here. We got to, you know, we're probably going to be sold during the, the weekend. I need to get uh, a good valuation of what the business is, uh, how much you guys did in revenue this year, you know, just get me all those numbers as soon as, soon as you can. And, you know, and then we got that all done on Friday. And then between Saturday and Sunday, I didn't know if I had the job anymore, right? What was going to happen? Uh, and then Sunday comes, and then there's an announcement that, you know, we're being sold, and, and all of that was done just kind of completely, like, really, really quickly. And, you know, I'm very against intervention from uh, government and all, and all of that, I think, as most people are. But I think at that point, uh, you know, I think we dodged the bullets because it would be worse, you know. <laughs> we need $2 trillion or the economy is going to collapse. <laughs> Who said that, Geithner or... Uh... Is it Geithner or um, Paulson? Paulson. I think it was Paulson. Paulson. Yeah. yeah. You think it would have been worse if they did nothing? I don't know. It probably. Where do you think we'd be today? So exactly. So that's the right question, right? I think that uh, short term. I think people are very short term oriented. That's the problem. So short term, it probably would have been worse. Definitely would have been worse. Long term, I think would have been better. Uh, I think. Biggest problem that we have right now is exactly that we're trying, we kept thinking for the last 40 years, 50 years, we kept trying to fix, and the Fed kept trying to fix these short-term problems, right? And they keep the, they fix the short-term problems by creating bigger long-term long problems. problems, right? And that was the typical situation where if they did nothing, short-term would have been pretty bad. Long-term, it probably would have been better, right? Uh, the question is always, you know, could the U.S. recover uh, if, you know, one of the big companies went down, the financial system really collapsed. 
who knows? I don't know, right? I think the, the problem was already much bigger from everything that was done before, you know, uh, everything that we know about. So at that point, I think they did the right thing. Uh, but, but again, they were just trying to fix a, pro a bigger problem that was done because of other things, right? Yeah, but we're here now in 2019, uh, over a decade, more than a decade away from that, uh, that collapse. And we seem to be right back where we were. So we did six years of expansion uh monetary base went from 800 billion to 4.4 trillion it's insane and it's we've, insanity. we've been tightening uh for four years now so six years of expansion four years of t well we were tightening for four years and now we're loosening the balance sheet yeah. again so let's talk about these repo uh, operations what the hell's going on is it qe without calling it qe yeah it's definitely qe right i mean the Fed doesn't, Fed doesn't want to call it QE, but it's definitely QE. Uh, there is injection of liquidity in the system, right? Somebody out there, and that's the thing that I really don't understand yet. And, you know, I asked many people, I talked to many people. I don't know what the source of this, but there is a financial institution somewhere that is in need of a lot of liquidity, right? Why? We don't know. Is it because of distress? Is it because of short-term issues? We don't know yet, but this is not normal. That's you know absolutely not normal. And this is QE. It's an injection of more liquidity in the system, right? A system that is already drowning in liquidity, and we're putting more liquidity into it. And it's going to pump the markets for a little bit longer, right? And uh, as I was saying, I think that you know it's like. You know, good parents think there's a semi coming on the wrong way, on the highway, right? You see it's coming the wrong way. You're just not going to stand in front of it because it's going to run you over. And there's so much money uh, on the system that I think stocks are going to continue to go up. But who knows for how long, right? And How do you transition out of this? Like how, well, is there anything... So you described that Brazil got its shit together in 94 and reduced its monetary base and figured out it's, it's a monetary house. Do you think that possibility exists for the global economy right now? I wouldn't say Brazil, Brazil fixed it. I think Brazil just went from being like completely, um, I don't know, like what Venezuela is, like printing money right away to printing responsibly, right? Uh, which... Printing responsibly is just printing, you know, you're still printing. <laughs> you're just printing in line with the rest of the world, right? But you're still printing. Um, and, uh, and again, I don't think they fixed anything. They just went from being in line with the rest of the world, right? Um, uh, for the, for, I think going forward, the answer is obvious, right? And that's why I think we're here. It's, I think Bitcoin is the answer to, to the monetary problems that we, we have in the world. Um, is it going to happen in one year, two years, three years, five years, ten years? Nobody knows, right? There's so many variables. And I think that's the thing that people still don't get is that, you know, this is a system with too many variables, right? We're looking at uh, adoption is going to take a long time, you know, and I'm talking about adoption like to the mom and pops out there. I still don't see adoption with large institutional players, right? You know, I, I'm so worried like in some of the meetings that I go with institutional clients, some of them I don't want to talk about Bitcoin because I know, you know, these guys are going to smirk and they're going to stop listening to everything else. And I'm saying it's like, you're going to think, oh, this is a crazy guy that thinks about Bitcoin, right? Um, and although they're starting to shift, it just shows you also that, you know, in terms of adoption, we still have a long way to go, which is great, right? Because we're early on this. Uh, price is going to be, I think, um, keep going up, right? Uh, 
and uh, price drives everything. You know, I, people say that price doesn't matter. Uh, I think they're wrong. I think price drives everything on this market because it's an incentive-based game theory market, right? Where the incentives are aligned to price from miners to hodlers to everybody else, right? We all care about price and before anything else, right? If we say, you no, know, I think we're I'm in it for the tech. <laughs> <laughs> it may make sense to get some just in case it catches on, freaks. Um, no, but you were mentioning before we hit record that you think it's going to startle us, right? You're going to what? Startle us. You think we're going to be think, uh, Bitcoin success is going to surprise us? Or? Yeah, I think so. I think that, uh, you know, first of all, um, I forgot who said, but uh, somebody, there was a podcast I heard some recently that guy said, oh, Bitcoin is like a truth machine, right? And I think in a sense it is. And I think in line with that, there are going to be completely new things that we still haven't predicted that are going to come out and going to hit us uh, from where we're not expecting in a positive way, right? And I'll go back to, I think, when, when the dot-com bubble started, um, I looked at all these companies, right? One of the things that I did at the time was research the um, technology companies. And I remember looking at all the search engines and all of that. And then fast forward to, I think it was 2004 that Google IPO'd. I remember 2004, 2005, something like that. And I remember when Google IPO'd, I looked at Google with my eyes of a, you know, a still a tech analyst. And I looked at it, I said, oh, this is a search engine. You know, this is way too expensive. I, there's absolutely <laughs> no way that I'm going to buy this, right, at the IPO price. And boy, was I wrong, right? Because I couldn't see like this whole new market that they had with data analysis and all couldn't of that. Couldn't predict the ad network that they'd be able to build. And, exactly. Yeah. And I think it's going to be the same thing with Bitcoin because uh, even stronger, because I think here, the, as I said before, the incentives are aligned for everybody. Uh, and it's not, on, it's not a company that it's only internal to a company. This is open to anybody in the world, right? This is a, a process where we are all equity holders on, on the growth of this ecosystem. And because of that, and it goes back to game theory, same thing, right? People are going to spend time on it. People are going to start developing on it. People are going to start to figure out some th other things that are just going to come out of the blue and I think surprise us uh, to, to the upside at some point. Yeah, no, I mean... What surprised me most recently, the last couple of months, is the rumors out of Venezuela that Maduro is actually using it to buy goods from other countries. Um, not that that's a use case. That's a, uh, a pretty straightforward use case, but it's still, nonetheless, pretty surprising to see that uh, it may be uh, at the game theoretic, geopolitical game theoretical level right now at this point. And they already know the price of the oil because it's uh, what it costs for them to mine it. Yeah, the price for... Like, in, like for selling oil... But when they're when Venezuela is selling oil, uh, their alternative is they can mine with that oil instead, right? Yeah, because they yeah. have in-house mining operations. So that's like their base level price. Like they don't even have to look at if they in the future they wouldn't even have to look at like global markets. They would just know like this is our this is the price where above that we'll take that price. Yeah, yeah, and I think that uh, we're hearing from Venezuela first. But, you know, I'm pretty sure that other countries are already investing in mining and buying uh, mining equipment because for them, electricity is cheap. And, you know, think about a country like Brazil. And again, there's no evidence that this is happening. But, you know, if I'm in Brazilian central bank and, you know, I look at Bitcoin and I make a decision that at some point I need to put that in reserves, probably the best way to do it is through mining, right? Have free hydroelectric electricity in the country, right? Buy mining equipment 
plug it in there, and then you start acquiring Bitcoin gradually, you know, without making too much noise. And uh, and I wouldn't be surprised at some of the spike that we've seen in hash rates recently is coming from some of that in, in places off, off the road, right? I don't know, but the, it could possibly be. Am I mistaken, or did Putin come out this week and say that they want to get into to mining? I, think I didn't see that, but I wouldn't be surprised if they are, but they would never be... Oh no! There was there was a hit piece that was about different mining ops that are happening in ex-Soviet countries. Oh, and, so actually, and they were trying to say that Bitcoin was also used to pay to hack Hillary's emails, and it was just like a major hit piece. But they did have aspects where they were talking about the thriving Bitcoin mining sectors in all these different countries. And yeah, it, like Bitcoin's the ideal money for Putin, but Putin's also not a fucking idiot. And he would never tell people that he's mining Bitcoin. Yeah. Right? So that's I think that's what it there was. You go. The uh, story you described. Austin Storms actually shared that with me. I only read the first paragraph to get. It was uh, it wired. wired. Yeah. It was a straight hit piece. Yeah. But I, it was a good article. <laughs> There's no incentive for any government to say that they are acquiring Bitcoin. There's zero incentive, right? At, at least at, at this point. Don't show your hands, uh, right? Exactly. So I think that by the time that they tell that they are thinking about acquiring, they already have going to have like stacks somewhere. <laughs> Global game of chicken. Well, this brings yeah. up an interesting uh, debate here, right? So, like, what, what, what would, what would you? Well, I mean, I think I know what you guys will want more of, but what do you think will happen more of? Is governments mining it directly, or governments making so their citizens can mine like with the easiest path forward? So, I think Trump. I tweeted this out, and people, somebody yelled at me for uh, involving the government in Bitcoin mining, but I say, as I said, I think America should incentivize Bitcoin mining. And some people took that as government programs to incentivize, like giving out subsidies uh, or grants to go mine Bitcoin. But I think you can do it with tax incentives, right? Say if you use X amount of uh, natural gas that would have otherwise been uh, just sent to the atmosphere, we're going to give you a Y tax break or something like that. And that's just yeah, pure exactly. market incentives. Right? And just like lack of regulatory burden, right? Yeah. Yeah. It would be huge. Yeah. Um, and just incentivize individuals and, and entrepreneurs to go do it. And would you rather have your country secured by the government mining Bitcoin or the the individual entrepreneurs? Yeah. And then you can always, down the road, you could raise their taxes or you could give them national security letters. And government is never do that. <laughs> do you think it's a national security issue? Yeah, I, I, I think it will be, I, I, and I think as a forward-looking person, it is already, right? Um, I, I think governments that within the next five years don't have a Bitcoin strategy are going to have serious issues. Yeah, yeah I think they're thinking about that. The only thing, you know, that having worked a little bit with government, that I think that it's the, the only reason why they haven't really jumped into this is that they're all very term-oriented, right? So I bet that, you know, whoever is making this decision, uh, they just don't want to jump the gun because if they're wrong, right, and they, they get, even if it is 0.1% of the of the their monetary base into Bitcoin and it goes wrong, it personally, it's going to hit them, right? Mm -hmm. so, we, but I think that's going to change. We need one more pump. One more pump because I feel like so many times... That's what you were with, saying three years ago, dude. But so many times with Bitcoin... You hear when you hear people's like story of how they got in, it's they hear about it, they kind of dismiss it, and then they hear about it a second time, right? And this last pump, a lot of people heard about it, yeah. a lot more than previously. 
So the next time, and a lot of them are government officials, I think. So I think like the next time it happens, it'll be like this for sure legitimacy factor for them. Yeah, yeah. Just did a little mic adjustment there. That that the thing always droops. The the mic might be too heavy for that stand. But no, I agree. Like it, uh, it will be undeniable. That is like, well, what is the the tipping point for? these officials to be like all right this is i mean it seems like it's already happening like uh, people admitting like patrick mchenry that it's not going anywhere um even brad sherman he understands <laughs> he does brad sherman what a what a villain but uh yeah like when when is it the point what is the point at which people are like there is like a a, a visible mad dash to to get as much bitcoin as possible and I think above all, we don't need it. Even if governments don't jump into this, right? Uh, it doesn't matter. I think that uh, Bitcoin is much bigger than any of that, right? Uh, and, and, you know, anytime that I, I, I come from a, a school, you know, economics background that, you know, it's very Austrian school oriented. So I want minimal government, you know, sometimes I don't, I don't want government. I, my dream is that they don't get involved at all, right? And right. then this is what's going to free us at the end of the day. Uh, but we've got to be realistic as well. And I think that, you know, it's game theory again. One government's looking at the other, the other as you said, it's a game of chicken, right? And like, okay, if I don't do this, maybe, you know, maybe China will do it, you know, maybe North Korea will do it. Uh, so maybe I should do some, right? <laughs> I should yeah. stack some. And I, I think that's a risk, a positive risk that uh, we're definitely facing. And I wouldn't, as I said, I wouldn't be surprised that there's something happening there already. Yeah. So what, um, do you trade Bitcoin at all? Or you, you? No. No. So, and this is, I'm very, you know, I've seen everything in terms of trading. Trading is very hard. Trading short term is very, very hard. Uh, particularly on this market, uh, because it's a market that, you know, tends to be sideways, 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 and then explodes in one direction or the other. And yeah, what's the quote if you miss five days of, uh, yeah. So I actually, you know, I, I, I wrote a web app for that, that, uh, you can just plug in and then you see that, you know, if I missed the, in the last three years, if I missed the top three, five period, uh, five best day periods and all of that, and it's just shocking. Like the amount of returns you're gonna, you're gonna lose if you're just not invested. It's massive. Uh, so I think everybody, you know, if you really want to trade, if you think you have an edge, which I definitely don't have, and I think most people don't as well, it, it is a losing game by definition, right? Because of fees and leverage and liquidations and all of that, it is a losing day, a game at the end of the day. Who's making a lot of money with this is Arthur with BitMax, right? Everybody else is losing money. <laughs> but if you do want to do it, keep a stack that you know this is my hodl stack that i'm not going to mess and don't mess with it you know put it aside put an amount of money that you know you know you're not going to need but set it aside forget about it right the hard part is like not touching that after yep. you lose the trading portion right? <laughs> exactly <laughs> and it, there's another thing which you know you've guys been around for you know at least a few cycles and I've seen more people get out of Bitcoins when the markets go up than when it goes down. Because it goes up, you start to look at that stack and you're like, oh, this actually now makes a difference in my life, right? This is a real money. So I'm probably going to sell some of that and you sell some of that, right? And then it goes even more than you're expecting up. And then you FOMO in and you buy more. So, and then you know, it goes down. And it goes down, exactly. <laughs> so I don't think it's a, you know, any market, any currency market, uh, any commodity marks already very hard to trade. And this is not one or the other. It's kind of like different. Yeah. This is even harder because, you know, you have fat tails uh, uh, in both directions and 
the chance that you're going to be misallocated either in one direction or the other, it's massive. So I'm completely against trading. Uh, you know, I know a lot of people follow TA. I, I don't follow TA. It's not for me. Um, I tried a few times. I actually studied a lot of TA in the beginning of my career. I had, um, it was one of my bosses that did a lot of TA. And I just saw him lose money, you know, time and time again. <laughs> and I think that's probably why I don't like it, right? So we all have our own experiences to drive <laughs> our thoughts. And uh, I know people that make money with it. Uh, but I, I'm convinced that it's a small percentage of people that are really going to make money on this, particularly on, on Bitcoin. So I think the best thing to do, you know, and you guys are huge proponents of this, is just keep stacking, keep buying, you know, wait for big drops. Like what we had, you know, a month ago, get in, buy some more, right? Uh, don't overdo it, and but just keep converting as much as you can with time. Uh, I actually, you know, in the, when I started, when I when I got into Bitcoin, it was um, right after Mt. Gox, so price collapsed, right? And I was kind of I kind of heard about it before, uh, so I was looking at it, but really not paying that much attention. But when price collapsed. Uh, I remember looking at it, it was around $100, and I saw the charge, I was like, oh, this thing was at $1,000 at some point, now it's at $100, and that, that got my attention, I'm like, okay, maybe, you know, maybe if this doesn't go to zero, which could, maybe it will go back to 1000 right? Um, so I started buying a little bit, and then I bought like at 100 150 you know, a little bit at 200 and then it went up to 400 500 like, okay, this is a massive run. I'm going to get out. So I got out and then I was, I wasn't allocated for a while, you know, and I kind of like left it on the side. Uh, and then by the time that I look again, it's above a thousand, which was <laughs> where I was looking at. Right. And of course I bought everything back at a thousand and it went down again. <laughs> so again, I'm not the best trader, so I'm probably not the right person to, to ask that question. Uh, but I, you know, you guys see it on Twitter all the time. There are always people with calls here and there. I haven't seen anybody with very, very exceptions that, you know, through this whole period of 2015 to now, they're still there, still making the calls and that on average are right, right? And that on average would have also like a recordable uh, metrics that you could follow because yeah. it's very easy to say, oh, it may go up, but it may go down, right? And, uh, but, you know, somebody that will tell like, I have a fund or I have, you know, somewhere where I'm a, tracking a my trade. sheet. Yeah. PNL, yeah, simple PNL sheet. Yeah. Uh, you know, I would take the bet every day that in the, you know in a period of two years, three years, five years, Bitcoin would outperform ninety-five percent of the traders out there. Yeah. Right. It's just uh, again, it's a benchmark that is very, very hard to to beat. What are uh, what are your thoughts on the future of Bitcoin volatility? I know Bitcoin Teen is a bit of a contrarian, thinks it's going to get more volatile from here. What do you think? So I think one of the things that uh, will drive um, volatility maybe down is the fact that we now have more options uh, market, right? And you make money on options market not by buying volatility, you make money by selling volatility, right? So if you cons consistently sell volatility on equity, mar on equity markets, for example, you make money. Right. It's been, you know, one of the, the risk parity uh, strategies that have worked for, for a long period of time. Why? Because typically implied volatility, which is what is priced in the options, is higher than historical volatility. Right. So in tech, and it should be there should be a premium for insurance. Right. And if you actually look at Bitcoin options, and I actually started looking at this uh, a little bit recently, implied volatility is very high. 
Historical is very high as well, but implied is very, very high. Um, if you look at the Ledger X options, for example, 2020 options are trading at close to 90% uh, implied volatility. Um, and, you know, options that are like 7,000 uh, strike puts, right? Mm -hmm. So there's a lot of premium to be gained there. So if you're systematically selling options, if you sell call spreads and put spreads, for example, uh, you're capturing that premium. And I think that may drive, uh, drive implied volatility down, which doesn't necessarily mean that realized volatility is going to go down, right? Because it's the tail, it's not the dog, right? Mm -hmm. uh, but ultimately, it may, because remember that everybody that puts a risk trade out there, they need to hedge that risk somewhere. So by hedging that risk, you may actually see volatility being driven down. Uh, and also, you know, it's a market that it's consolidating. It's a market that, you know, I think that uh, there's kind of like, it, there's significantly less, let's think about fundamentally, right? There's significantly less um, uncertainty today than there was in 2015. 2015, I remember putting, you know, a few hundred dollars into Bitcoin and thinking, it's this is going to go to zero, yeah. right? Like, that was like clear, but this is going to, you know, I, I'm okay if this goes to zero. <laughs> there's no Chance that it's going to go to zero today in my mind. <laughs> no chance, right? Uh, no, I mean it's a completely different market. Why now. do you say that? What? No chance at all? I very. I wouldn't say no chance at all, but uh, you know, because there's a chance for everything, right? But uh, chances are minimum. At that point, the chances were like significant. You know, I think about a ten percent, fifteen percent chance. I agree. I think Bitcoin's biggest hurdle is going from zero to one. Everything after that is. Well, the market has matured tremendously. I mean, and and just liquidity has gone up, and and we have so many more exchanges like on ramps, off ramps. I mean, I remember there it used to be like, and it still kind of is, but every big move like Coinbase goes down. Yeah. Right. And yep. if Coinbase is dominating the volume, and they're the only ones where you can trade, then a single exchange going down really fucks up the increases market. Increases a shit ton of volatility, right? Yeah. yeah. At that moment. And but I, you know, answering your question, is volatility going to go down and up? I think that, you know, I I'm going to take the other side now, right? Because of that, there's a chance that volatility may actually go up. Because let's say, for example, we start a new run and we hit all-time all highs. The on-ramps are all plugged in. So people may just decide and FOMO in and say, well, you know, I just want to jump back in. And you may have this flood into the market that we haven't experienced before. Oh, and because of that, we may actually have spikes in volatility that are much higher. So I think what we're going to probably see is that volatility is gradually going down, uh, but with maybe higher spikes in volatility than we had before. So the second derivative of volatility like is actually is actually going to be higher than what we've seen before. Do you think we see a Bitcoin VIX-like derivative soon in the future? Sorry? Do you think we see a Bitcoin VIX-like derivative in oh, the yeah, future? Oh, yeah, absolutely. At some point, for sure. I have no question uh, yeah. that we're going we're to have that. Technically, one could create an index already, right? Because we have options available. So VIX is basically just 30-day uh, options on the S&P, right? You have a, it's a systematic index that it's con constructed. And you, so the same thing we are going to see in Bitcoin. Uh, actually, that creates me an idea. Maybe we should create something like that and put it out there, right? Look, using uh, Ledger X API. Mm -hmm. um, and then it's an easier way to track uh, authority. The only, the only thing that I think it's a little bit harder is that uh, the strikes that we ha we don't have many strikes in in uh, Bitcoin right now. So you know to pick like VIX is very straight in terms of like uh, how much out of the money you are um, 
to create the index. But still, I think it's something that's definitely absolutely doable. Yeah. And I think we're actually going to have a market into buying and selling uh, volatility. volatility yeah. 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 So if you freaks that don't know, the VIX is an index that measures the volatility, the S&P 500 index, very popular derivative. Yeah. You know, and, and above, I, what is it? VIX above 20, it's very volatile. It's like crazy, right? That's yeah, it's, yeah, fairly, fairly high. Uh, yeah. Not crazy, but fairly high. Like 2007, we had the VIX spike to, to close to 100. Yeah. That's Bitcoin volatility. Yeah. Uh, and people are, you know, people forget risk very quickly, right? And they forget that, you know, we had a period of 10 years in the S&P where the S&P didn't go anywhere, uh, you know, and up until recently. And we had a period in the S&P where the S&P volatility was close to, you know, 70s, 80% uh, mm-hmm. as well. And uh, we are, I guarantee we're going to see that again. I don't know if it's going to be next month or it's going to be three years from now, which we're definitely going to see that at some point because prices are just, again, being inflated. Uh, for the wrong reasons. Yeah, no, it's um, it's crazy. And if you guys are interested in Bitcoin derivatives, in particular, CoinGecko actually just came out with a really good page, with a really thorough page with uh, derivatives and options products across the market. Um, so go check that out, CoinGecko. It was actually a really cool page. Um, what I want to jump on from here, uh, the what was I going to say? Let me gather my thoughts here. Just going back to that, I think that one of the strategies that we did in. Uh, in Wall Street, and this is this is this is interesting. I think that, uh, and going back to your question regarding a volatility market for for Wall Street, 2007, 2008, when we were looking to the market um, to buy protection in the market, right? And I kind of touched this on the last time that it was in the in the podcast. Um, and we looked into buying options, the S&P, buying put options. That's the first thing that comes to your mind, right? I want to protect myself, so I'm going to buy a put option on the S&P. S&P goes down, I exercise that option, I make money, right? The problem with that is that first you need to pick a period. So you're going to say, let's say I buy a one-month option, right? So next month, I need to do that again, and I need to do it again, and I need to do it again. So you're losing money, losing money until you make money. Uh, but the biggest problem is that the time that you really need the option it's probably the time where volatility spiked up and you're probably going to say, I don't want to buy it at this level of volatility, right? So you just spent, you know, a long time of paying premium and then the time that you really want to make money first, you know, the option may not perform as well because you're dealt and other things, but second, it's probably going to be expensive, right? So one of the things we, we did a lot at that time is actually flip it around and do the option, sell, systematically sell volatility um, on the S&P. And that actually worked really well as a protection because of periods that of distress, what happens that the implied volatility, which is what's pricing the options, spiked significantly and significantly more than historical volatility, right? So you're capturing a lot of premium in times of distress. Uh, and that ended up being a very good strategy to, to protect portfolios at the, at the end of the day, right? Of course, for the last 10 years, it didn't work. You would have lost a lot of money <laughs> um, because, you know, again, implied volatility is collapsing, historical volatility is collapsing as well. The premiums are very low. And then whenever you have a small spike, you lose a lot of money. Uh, but in periods of distress, that, that is a good strategy. Play that ARB. Yeah. 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 And I think that uh, it's something definitely to consider in Bitcoin, selling calls and put spreads and just putting, getting the premium every month, right? Yeah. No, and I finally remembered what I was going to transition to, and it just went up my head again. Marty, concussion Marty. Oh, exactly what I wanted to ask you. So uh, very interested to get your insights on this. Uh, the rumor, well, not rumors, just the theories that, uh, not, not rumors. All right, let's talk about, so the CFTC ex-chief Chris Gian, Christopher Gian and Carlo came out at a 
uh, a conference at the beginning of last week and basically said that the Trump administration gave the okay to the CFTC futures for Bitcoin because they wanted to quote unquote pop the bubble. So uh, a lot of people think that these futures markets may be used to manipulate the price of Bitcoin and suppress the price of Bitcoin more importantly. Uh, what are your thoughts on, on this market structure? Obviously, you think these products yeah. are, are important. I, hard to say. Uh, I, at the end of the day, futures shouldn't drive direction one side or the other. It should just add liquidity to the market, right? So the liquidity will flow to wherever it needs to flow, right? So if there was a restriction in liquidity on the buy side or on the sell side, it would have flown it that way, right? But by itself, it shouldn't pop a bubble uh, unless you're in a market that is extremely restricted, right? Like, think about a market where you can't sell short. There's, you can only buy, right? Uh, in a way, it's kind of like what the US equity market is. It's much harder to sell to short a stock than it is to buy a stock, right? Um, so when you add futures on individual stocks, you may actually give the ability for some people to, to kind of like bring prices down. I don't think it's the case with Bitcoin. I think there, you know, we've had so many different options. Bitmax was around already. They had, you know, Bitmax has a massive volume. Uh, it's not open to U.S. clients, but U.S. clients have other options as well. So, I, you know, I, I think he's trying. He's giving himself too much credit for that. Mm -hmm. It was a coincidence more than anything else, and he may just be trying to be more relevant. But who, who knows, right? Uh, but I, my personal view is that that wasn't the the reason for prices to, to come yeah, down. It's hard. It's hard to find a direct uh, cause for a price movement, right? Yeah, exactly. Well, I mean, like the day the CME announced futures, Bitcoin was trading at like nine k, right? And then on like the eve of the launch, we hit nineteen. So like maybe we wouldn't have even pumped as high as we pumped this run exactly if it wasn't for the cme to begin with right and in a bull market everything is good news right, right. so markets where the people just look at anything that come out and like they use that as an excuse to fear to buy a position and to accumulate more and to get more leverage right but that uh, was good news right? so that was good news. huge news yeah exactly because it's bringing more liquidity to yeah. the market uh it's bringing more legitimacy to the market right because now it's a market that is priced in, in the chicago exchange right and all of that so it is good news, uh, but it brings right. pressure to people that put potentially short more. Uh, you know, I, I haven't looked at the numbers. It would be interesting to see, you know, what the kind of like the, the open interest positions were after it, uh, it opened. Uh, I would doubt there is a correlation with price there. But again, I don't know. I haven't run the numbers. Yeah, it's the big gold bug theory is that uh, the powers that be are manipulating gold prices via futures markets. Um, what are your thoughts on the ETF? Do you think we need it? Do you think it's important? Do you think it's valuable? Will it have the same effect? So we don't need it. It would be valuable because uh, price dictates everything. And I guarantee price would pump significantly because of that, right? Of course. I mean, Apparently you know, one just got okayed in Canada. Yeah, but I think the big one is the U.S., right? When we have one in the U.S. and everybody can come in and you can buy in your brokerage account, you can buy some Bitcoin. Uh, that is a game changer. There's no question about that. That's going to drive price ridiculously high very, very quickly, right? And I think ultimately is also going to drive price through. Same thing happened with gold, right? When you had the gold ETF. Yeah. Uh, and ETFs in general, when they come out, you know, they tend to drive prices of the under underlying assets up. 
Same thing with bonds and all of that, right? We've seen it time and time again. So I think when it happens, it's going to drive price up. And price is the most important variable in Bitcoin. So it's going to be good for Bitcoin because of that. Uh, do we need an ETF? Absolutely not. If I am a, a purist and I say, listen, you know, I, I think people should have their own keys. And, you know, at the end of the day, they should control the, their Bitcoins. And we don't have a huge fidelity or whoever it is that issues the, the, the ETF that is holding like a massive position that could be hacked and all of that. ETF is bad, right? Uh, but again, I think the, the pros that we're going to get out of this uh, in price are much bigger than anything else. So I would love to see an ETF to, to be approved. And I'll go further. Like, you know, I, I look at 90% of my colleagues in, in Wall Street. I'm not comfortable, you know. I actually, I, I, I have a, a, a wallet where I hold Bitcoin for a friend of mine that I know that, you know, there's no way that he can hold the Bitcoin because <laughs> he's going to either lose the wallet or he's going to forget his seed or whatever it is. He's just not tactful enough. And this is a guy that, you know, again, it's Wall Street, you know, it's not dumb. He's just not technology savvy enough to, to do this, right? So an ETF would give access to a lot of people like that. And there are, a, we, we kind of like, you know, look at this, our Twitter bubble where everybody, you know, we want to be purists and we want to hold our own keys. And that's what I do. That's what you do. Right. And I think ultimately everybody's going to get there. But between where we are today and that point, we need other steps. Right. And an ETF, I think it's a, in my view is that it's an important step to that. Yeah. It's a uh, Vanek has been trying getting shot down. What do you think their biggest hurdle is? It's very like unclear at this point to me yeah again i you know having dealt with regulators in the past it's uh it's hard to read into their incentives uh and you know put yourself on the shoes of these regulators as well personally they have a lot more downside than they have upside right these are not guys that get paid bonus at the end of the year i mean get paid bonus but it's not tied to anything there's no monetary incentive for them if an etf is launched and it captures i don't know billions and billions of dollars, that's not going to change anything in their compensation, right? But if a, an ETF is launched and there is a hack and, you know, an ETF goes down significantly, they're going to be to blame. So they're in very tough shoes right now that, uh, you know, again, the, the pressure that they have on the other side is that if they don't approve this, right? I mean, it's... they miss the boat. Exactly. And it's innovation that, you know, that uh, the U.S. needs, right? Uh, so I bet that they're getting a lot of pressure on the on that side, but personally, as an individual, right, whoever is making that decision, they're gonna try everything that they can. Uh, my view, at least, is that that they, to shut it down, right? There's very little on that for them. Yeah, yeah. No, it's um, it's just been. I mean, it's something we've been parroting on TFTC for a while. Is don't hold your breath for the institutional money. It'll be really good when it comes. But yeah, it's been uh, been pretty hard for them too get these products out there i mean ledger x um i think i'm actually speaking with paul tomorrow uh and their situation with the cftc seems a bit uh very competitive uh if you will um but one thing i'm interested in have you been following the debate around the stock to flow model uh yeah yeah i mean i think it's everything everybody else yeah i've been i've been looking at it uh, so what are what are your thoughts i think it's a very good model for the long term um and I think ultimately it's probably going to play out if we go into hyper Bitcoinization, right, of the, of the world. Um, but again, I think it's too early to know. And uh, I think that, uh, you know, the orders of magnitude we are talking, it doesn't matter if the model is right or wrong. I think fundamentally it makes sense. Um, I also think it's a very good story to tell, 
right? I think it's something that the people that you go out and you, uh, and you tell them when, when you put it in terms of stock to flow and you compare to other commodities and they can see it and then they kind of start to understand the value of uh, a limited amount of Bitcoin out there and the limited amount of issuance of Bitcoin out there. Um, so I think the value is more in that than anything else, right? And what, how people are going to look at this, right? And the story that, uh, that you can tell. Uh, and I think that the, the again, it, it, very limited number of data points, but so far it has been proven to, to be right. It's right? a pretty impressive model up to this point. Yeah. Um, yeah. Don't, don't tell Bitcoin Tina or a lot of, it's very, it's a, a lot of contention right now. Um, cause I, I do believe that if you can stomach the assumption that Bitcoin's network effect gives it, uh, a, a um, gives it an advantage over other blockchains. Uh, I think that does make sense to apply it to the There blockchain. are no other blockchains. <laughs> no, I'm dead serious. There are no other blockchains. Why do you say that? Because, you know, again, I think Bitcoin already, you look at any metric that you want, right? Look at hash rate, look at market cap, like, uh, and I know market cap has its flaws, but Bitcoin is far beyond anything out there. Uh, and again, I think the way that I looked at this coming more from the economic, the game theory side, I never really look into the tech side and maybe I'm wrong. Maybe there is something that's going to come out there that it's completely different, but I don't believe so. I think that, you know, everything that I look, the market is proving me that Bitcoin already won this game, right? Uh, and if something comes out, I think that at this point, there's so much adoption, so much development behind Bitcoin, so many people behind it. If something comes out of other coin that is very, very good, Bitcoin is going to try to adapt to get that, right? The incentives are completely aligned for, for that to happen. Yeah, no, it was what I uh, wrote about this morning was basically, I'll fix that uh, in a second before I get to this, but, or after I get to this, after, but what I wrote about was, uh, what did I write about? I wrote about BitMEX Research just put out a research paper on Bitcoin's timestamping mechanism and uh, specifically around difficulty adjustments, this mechanism is very important. And what we found when Bitcoin Cash had to fix their, do their emergency difficult adjustment, it really fucked up uh, their blockchain, specifically with difficulty adjustments and made them more susceptible to miners mining blocks a lot faster. And this one time stamping mechanism, just one part of the design, Satoshi thought it through so thoroughly. And he wasn't even a good coder. So that's the point I make. Like Satoshi wasn't a good coder, but like from an incentive design system he's like michelangelo like this the incentives are such uh that the tech is almost secondary to the incentives i would argue exactly it's exactly right it's all about incentives right and everything is aligned and the difficulty you know same thing like we hear about the the death spire and all that doesn't matter right because the incentives are aligned if you know if the death spire happens you know difficulty is going to come down and we are going to ultimately be be fine so one of matt's favorite Topics, the death spiral. You and Ari going back and forth, man. Yeah, I mean, apparently he wasn't calling for a death spiral, so <laughs> guess there's that. There'll be more. Next cycle, we'll have death spiral fight again. It's not done. We haven't proved it. I, we have all the tweets to retweet the next time. Just, exactly. All these cycles now, I just have a database of tweets to retweet. You don't even have to send out originals. Yeah. And we were talking about the ETFs, just to go back to, to that a little bit, because you kind of touch into... The, the institutional side of the of the business and you know everybody says oh institutions are here institutions are already investing they're not at least my experience with the people that I, that I talk to 
uh, as I was saying, I'm still embarrassed in some of the meetings to talk about Bitcoin because <laughs> I will get the eventual smirk or somebody will look at me like, oh, this is the crazy guy that's talking about Bitcoin again. Um, and that happens still to this day a lot with uh, some very large family offices. You know, you go meet with them and you talk about, you know, typically what I'll do is that I'll talk about different asset classes, about the equities, commodities. And then eventually when you get to currencies and commodities, that's kind of like when the Bitcoin conversation you know, I, I hint things here and there that, you know, I just wait to see if they get the bait and they will talk about uh, Bitcoin. And it's one out of, I don't know, maybe 15 family offices that will say that uh, they are doing something actively. A lot of them will say that they're looking at it, they're researching, um, but pulling the trigger and having invested is like a minority of them. And most of the ones that are investing are the ones that come from founders that uh, were, you know, have technology backgrounds. Because then the, the founders will tell the family office, like, hey, I heard about this. I went to, to a VC dinner or whatever it is, and somebody's investing, I want to buy some. So it's coming from, from the, the head of the, 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 the family, side. the yeah. client side, exactly. Uh, do you think backed helps at all here? It is more liquidity, for sure it helps. It's a different vehicle. Um, you know, having Bitcoin settled futures is definitely good, good for the market. It's pretty good to see how much volume they're, they're picking up uh, in yeah. the last few weeks, right? Yeah. You know, now it's actually decent. Um, I'm a little surprised how they launched, and I would have expected them to launch with kind of like some demand already lined up in the yeah, background. Like market makers or something. <laughs> exactly, they had, yeah. Going on. They had what, but, 70 Bitcoin worth of volume the first day. But maybe it was by design. Maybe that's what they wanted to do. You know, I, I don't know. Ease I don't, into I, it. I don't know. Exactly. I, I, I mean, don't know. It's still negligible volume compared to. CD. It is, yeah, yeah. Yeah. You're talking about, you know, at most, I think they did like 1,000 Bitcoins a day. It's, yeah. So once again, I messed up on RHR a couple of weeks ago. The CME contracts got five Bitcoin underlying backs, only got one. So the. Each contract is five. Yeah, I'm pretty sure. Or six. Five six, or six. I think six. Six, right? yeah. yeah. Six. So it's six. So you got to multiply the CME volume by six and compare it to back to then. Yeah. I mean, it's a minuscule amount. Yeah. 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 The most amount, I think that what's really drives short-term prices, it's still the leverage that you have on, uh, you know, Bitfinex, Bitmax, all of those uh, exchanges. Uh, Hundred times leverage is something that you know. The first time that I saw that, uh, I like this is wrong. <laughs> There's absolutely no way that you know you can get a hundred times leverage. It's just marketing. No one really uses that. Supposedly. Yeah, the average leverage on Bitmax is like seven and a half x. Yeah, said. Yeah, I but mean, we saw in both directions when we went down like two thousand yeah. relatively quickly. It was like a hundred and eighty million dollars of the liquidations on Max. Five hundred million dollars of liquidation. <laughs> well, we went up, right? Yeah. When we went to forty percent. Again, yeah. yeah. So insane. it's insane. It's insane. So people are leverage uh, definitely too much, right? Half a billion dollars. Uh, so it's <laughs> crazy. It's insane. So that kind of like it's an animal that feeds on itself, right? Because price starts to go up you have these liquidations, right? And then, you know, in order to have the liquidations, it's somebody that's short, they have to buy it back, right? So, you know, they buy it back to close the hedges because somebody's hedged somewhere, right? And that just keeps driving it up. So we have these explosive moves up and down, right? Yeah, the, uh, the, the liquidity crunches are very, very crazy in this, in this asset class. Is that surprising? Stack sats and make it more liquid. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so it's a... Let's venture into somewhere else for a little bit here. You said you're running triathlons. What's that like? How'd you get into triathlons? Yeah, actually, you know, I'm uh, a long time ago. So when I got into this was, uh, I think when my daughter was born, you know, I was 30 pounds overweight. <laughs> uh, you know, I had like massive migraines. Um, my cholesterol was off the charts. 
So, and I kind of like went through a little bit of an existential crisis. I look at my daughter like, I'm gonna die at some point, working like crazy hours in Wall Street, traveling like a crazy man. And I thought I, I gotta do something. And I remember exactly the day where I decided to, to make a change was the day that, you know, I used to wor work down at Wall Street and I used to catch the ferry every day. So one of the days I'm coming down, I try to run for the ferry and it's like, I don't know, maybe a 200 meter run. I get to the ferry and I'm like shaking uncontrollably. <laughs> like I got to do something about this, man. Uh, so the next day I went out for a run because I thought, you know, since I'm traveling a lot, I can probably just run anywhere I go. I take my running shoes. So I ran for 10 minutes. And of course, I came back home sweating like a pig. You know, my legs are like shaking. Um, and I, this is not right. <laughs> and I think in my early 30s uh, and, and I, I'm going to have a heart attack. And then I go to the, to the doctor. And of course, you know, my blood exam comes like horrible in terms of cholesterol, everything. So I started running. Um, and, you know, Wall Street used to have this 5K that they did every year, mm -hmm. uh, the running of the bulls. I don't know if they still have that. And I signed up for that. Uh, and then I did a 5K and then a 5K led to a 10K, led to a marathon. Uh, and then after a marathon, like, I got a, you know, typical Wall Street A-type personality, right? <laughs> oh, I'm going to do an Ironman. Extreme. <laughs> and no idea what you're doing, right? And they're just jump into it. So uh, I did in 2010. 10 my first Ironman and since then I've done uh, I've completed 10 Ironmans uh, I've done 12 two of them I didn't finish uh, I've done uh, ultra marathons uh, and again I think this is a huge part of, um, uh, of I think my life and being able to do other things because you know if you don't have balance you know if you, you know, I always look at life like in three different points right you have your health uh, have your professional life and have your family. Uh, if one of them is not in balance, right, you're, the rest is going to suffer. Uh, so triathlons is where I kind of found the, the balance point. The, the balance, yeah, for for my health side. And what's it like preparing for an Ironman? So how long are Ironmans? There's yeah, you go hundreds. So you you twenty miles, right? So you, in miles, you swim two point four miles. You bike 112, and then you do a 42-kilometers run, a 26-mile run at the end, a marathon at the end, right? Um, so it will take my fastest one I've done in a little bit less than 10 hours. Uh, my slowest one I've done in uh, 12 hours and change. Uh, how, do you, how do you stay active for 10 hours, right? Yeah, What's that even like? You'd be surprised. I think that your body can do things that you don't know it can do. Uh, it's just like stacking sets. You start slowing, start building, right? Uh, I had to get the parallel. <laughs> <laughs> and then, you know, before you know it, as I said, I started with a 5K. A 5K for me, I, I could, when I did a 5K, I couldn't even think about completing that thing, right? Uh, but again, we can all do, I think, much more than we, we think we can. And as you start training, and then honestly now, you know, this is probably going to sound wrong, but I look at an Ironman now and it's like, eh, no big deal. Anybody can do it, right? Mm -hmm. And I mean it. I know that anybody can do it if you really, you know, think about training and you be disciplined. And uh, it's mind over matter. Yeah, exactly, exactly. That's yeah. uh, when back in my athlete days, I used to be in very good shape, freaks. But that was uh, I used to work. I'm getting back into it too. But mind over matter, like when you're doing like a long run, just like the faster I run, the sooner I'll be done. Exactly. Uh, and some of the, I think some of the best thinking that I get 
it's doing long bike rides, doing long runs, because you're just, you know, today we have too much of electronics, so we're always on yeah. the electronics. So when you go out on a run, when you're out on a bike ride, you're not looking at anything, right? You're inside your mind, and uh, it gets you to think a lot about the different things. And I think that's one of the biggest values that I take out of it, is that it's my time to really be introspective and forget about the Do you the listen to anything while you run? Uh, running sometimes. I actually listen to podcasts sometimes while I'm running. But there are a lot of times that I prefer to just, you know, shut it down. You know, yeah, sometimes I run, most of the times I run with a GPS watch, but there are times that I just don't want to run with anything, just disconnect because that's the purpose of it is to right. disconnect and kind of like <laughs> think, think differently. And bike rides are even better because in bike ride, you can't put have anything in your ears because you have to listen for cars and things like that. And it, the t in terms of hours, you know, I'll go out on a bike ride for five hours, seven hours. Jesus. Uh, yeah, and you're not, imagine, listening to anything. You're going to think, I used to tell my, my wife, like, listen, I have a problem. I go out on a bike ride. If I come back with the same problem, you know, I'm probably not going to find the solution to the problem. <laughs> it's not with me, right? That's a good heuristic to use. I like that. Yeah. It's um, no, it's a, uh, it's a good story. Like, so you're in your early 30s when you got into this. Yeah. So now I'm in my late 40s and still, still, still doing ripping. it. Yeah. Looking, looking young and spry. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. So, thanks again for coming in, dude. It's my pleasure. Thanks for everything you guys do. You know, as awesome. I said, this is one of the best podcasts out there. I learned so much from you guys, and that's yours. And I think that you know, there are a lot of people out there that. Uh, look at their Bitcoin experience and a lot of it they owe to you guys. Oh, That's serious it. about it. Yeah. Thank you, dude. That's why we do it. Thank you. Yeah, and it's, no, it's, like I was telling you before we record, I stumbled into this. I was forced to start a podcast by somebody who wanted to learn more about Bitcoin. I'm just very fortunate to have been serendipitously in that position. And uh, yeah. yeah. Is there anything Bitcoin-wise, parting notes, you want to, any, any, any thoughts about that we haven't covered that, that you think well, As I said, you know, just uh, stay humble, stack sets, <laughs> and that's serious. You know, don't if you really want to get into trading, um, think twice before doing it. Make sure that you know you don't do it with huge amount of money, and because uh, chances are you're gonna get hurt. Yeah, yeah, that's uh, I can I can uh, confirm that 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 sentiment right there. It's not worth it, if you, especially if you don't know how to trade. You're talking to somebody who's traded in his life before. It is not easy to just jump into. Yeah. Alpha Zeta, it's been a pleasure meeting you in person. Breakfast was lovely. Uh, I hope you enjoy your afternoon trick-or-treating in Hoboken. Thank you. Um, Matt, anything? Love you guys. Peace and love. Peace. <laughs>